I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. All our sensory and then it explodes into this enormous Normandy Ellis. She's an award-winning writer, workshop facilitator, and archpriestess of the Fellowship of Isis, and the author and co-author of several books, including Awakening Osiris and Hieroglyphic Words of Power. She also leads tours of Egypt, and her new book that we'll be talking about is The Ancient Tradition of Angels, The Power and Influence of Sacred Messengers which is an in-depth study of angels and the angelic dimensions from traditional spiritual perspectives to the quantum perspective from ancient times to the present day. So Normandy, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you, Tonio. So many, many people all over the world have given accounts of seeing or hearing angels or feeling their presence at times in their lives. Some people say that angels are real, while others say they are a product of our overactive imagination. So from your perspective, your understanding, what are angels 
and why do so many people have such a wide range of experience with them? First of all, I love this quote by Mary Oliver, which is, only if you believe in angels will you ever see one. And I think that that goes a long way toward explaining how the question that you have is, are angels a product of over-imagination? They are a product of the mind. But I don't believe that means that they are not real because our mind creates this entire reality in the cloak that we wear as our personal clothes. You know, the mind is this incredible creation machine and it's connected to divinity. And so I think that when we say angels are a product of the mind, the answer is yes. And if your mind is working clearly and in connection with spirit, you will see angels. So you just said something that's wonderful that I, I would like to explore more with you. And that is the connection between how we're connected to divinity and how we create all of our perspectives and perceived experiences through our mind. Okay. I think that that's the first hermetic law, the law of mind, is the first hermetic law that, oh, what's there's this other great quote by um, Antonin Artaud, who says, belief is believing in God, but faith is believing that God believes in you. And so there has to be this interplay between your connection to the divine in order for you to feel the connection to the angelic realm. And of course, that occurs within the realm of our, our mind as well. Right, right. All is mind. That's the first hermetic principle. All is mind. And it reminds me of an old, old quote from John Lilly that, that I've carried with me for close to 45 years from his book, Center of the Cyclone. And you have a quote from him from a, another book of his in mm -hmm. the book, and his quote is, what we believe to be true either is true or becomes true within the limits of the mind. And in the province of the mind, there are no limits. That's right. And he came to that after years of doing research into the realm of his own mind through neuroscientific studies, as well as his, his own psychedelic self-explorations and all the insights that came with that. And I found that to be a very, very powerful way of understanding. And I've been integrating that and discovering new levels of insight into that quote of his. Yes. Yes. So since your field of specialty is actually in the ancient Egyptian realm of their gods and goddesses, and that aspect of what I think you would call the astral realm, or that many people would call the astral realm. So could you begin by talking about what is the astral realm, and how you came to angels, and how angels, how you see angels as relating to the ancient gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt? Okay, that's a packed question. I'll I try know. to get as far as I can. Um, first of all, you know, Genesis has more than one story of creation, and so do the ancient Egyptians. Their story of creation, you know, one of them we know of 
is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was God. Thoughts are things. And so there are many stories in ancient Egypt about the divine God, either Ptah or Atum or sometimes Amun, but they open their lips and light springs from their lips. There's nothingness. And then light springs from their lips. In fact, Ptah's name is spelled P-T-H, like you're spitting out a seed, Ptu, you know, like the earth is made from a watermelon seed, I like to think. So Ptah opens his mouth and light springs from his lips and illuminates the earth and the light draws forth all the things that are coming into being. That's a little bit similar to stories that we've heard in Genesis. But there's also a God whose name is Canoe, and he makes people out of clay. This God is a lot like Yahweh, and he sits at his potter's wheel, and he breathes life and spirit into these creations of his at the potter's wheel. There is more of a galactic story of Neith, who is a goddess who creates the world, And she's the goddess of weaving. That's her specialty. And she is, imagine webs of light that are woven across the top of the water. You know, when you're sailing and you see these webs of light, that's what her dress looks like. And she reaches into herself and she pulls out form and she begins to name each form that she pulls out. And there's another way of creating, which is mathematical and uh, alchemical, I guess. And that's the god that we know as Thoth. His real name in Egypt is Tehute. And he stirs the cauldron. And he sees inside this cauldron, it's like a cosmic DNA. And he sees frogs, and he sees serpents, which are male and female. And they're swimming around in this cauldron, merging together. And he says, first I was one, then I was two, then I was four, then I was eight, and then I was one again. And that's kind of like the way the DNA spiral is. It's almost like he's looking at the egg and the sperm separating and becoming beings and creatures. And so he creates through mathematics. So there are many stories in ancient Egypt where the divine is making the world. And then from that divine being, other beings are formed. So we would call them gods and goddesses, but they are like lesser gods and goddesses than the great creators. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the what some might call the great God or the, the, the ultimate God is the formless state out of which everything yes. em- emerges from. And many traditions allude to that in their own unique ways. Like in the Taoist tradition, they talk about how out of the formless came the one, and then from the one came the two, you know, mm-hmm. heaven, heaven and earth, the male and female principle. And from that came the 10,000 things, which refers to the world, everything in the world. Right. Right. Very similar story. Yeah. And so the winged ones, we know we see Isis and Nephthys, and there are a lot of other beings. Sekhmet sometimes has wings. The dung beetle certainly has wings. But a lot of that wingedness 
is about how quickly things can come into existence through thought or emotion. And the astral world is the world, I would say it's more a felt world. Um, It's a connection to the world through our emotional realms. But the astral world is what precedes the physical world. You know, we build from spirit to mental to astral to physical. Yeah, and there's a dynamic connection between thought and and emotion and feeling because they they seem to be essential dynamics in the creative process. Right, right. And I loved what you said about wings, the image of wings in these beings being the symbol of how these entities can travel beyond space and time or beyond the limits of space and time. Right, the quickness of a thought Mm -hmm. or a feeling, the quickness of a feeling. So how did you become interested in all of this or, or discover this realm? And talk about your experience in this realm. Okay, so I think I always had a fascination with angels because I grew up in an Episcopal home, but all of my mother's sisters and brothers were Catholic. And so when I would go and visit them, they would have the Virgin Mary and, you know, Jesus and angels and all that stuff. And I wondered why we didn't have it. So that's kind of like a a longing, I would say, first came because the angels were, you know, very protective. My aunts would sing me songs about how they would surround my bed and I could see them surrounding my bed. So I knew that they were real. Um. I knew spirit first through Egypt because I would hear this woman calling outside. Uh, I was about five or so. It was cold. And and I asked my mother to open the door and let her in. And my mom said, well, who is she? And I said, it's God's wife. And my mother said, well, what's her name? And I said, the ice queen. And really, I understood later it was Isis who was calling And anyway, my mom let her in and we sat and talked and had these long conversations about life and death and angels and God and creation and prayer and, you know, sitting at my mom's kitchen table. I was five years old. Anyhow, then seeing myself being protected by angels, feeling them beside me when I was walking in the dark and afraid and I could see danger approaching, I could feel the angels behind me, you know, and so that I could pass by almost like passing through a gate of flames, you know, it happened that way when I was in Egypt. And I was lost and almost got mugged, but an angel appeared in a human form. But he had no way of knowing what he told me, which was how to get to safety. He didn't know where my hotel was. Um, I saw a city of gold appear during the harmonic convergence, and it just appeared on the horizon as I was sitting there meditating one morning, and I could see all of these winged beings of light, but it was much more like Mount Meru, you know, a description of something like Shambhala. And I'm sitting there watching this city rising up on the horizon, and about the time that I was getting ready to say something, my friend who was meditating with me opened her eyes and said, did you see that? I was like, yeah, I did. 
you know, so the fact that we both saw the same thing was quite an affirmation to me that, yes, we did indeed see a city of angels on that day. Um, Many things like that have happened, you know, where I was in a car wreck once and um, was lucky to be alive. And when I stepped outside of the door, there was a white feather on the ground, you know, to assure me that the angels had been with me. So things like that have made me very sure and certain that the angels are there. They come to deliver messages. They come for protection. And, you know, I think whether it's a melech or a malachi or an angel, no matter what you call it, that they are all from the same divine thought pattern that has existed from the beginning of time. Clarify what you mean by that that these are entities that have existed since the beginning of time? Well, they came before us. So in that regard, we would have no concept of time until we had come into existence, past, present, or future. But angels have no past, present, or future. They simply are. They are just like they're part of the light that is... God's essence, in the same way that we're part of the light that's God's essence. That's how we and angels connect with each other. It's through a conversation of light. And I believe, you know, time and space are ways that we parse out our lives on earth. I don't really think of time and space, in my opinion, as being influential in the spiritual world. There's only isness. There's not time or space. Time or space is a thought construct. But I think that it's only isness. So I just want to clarify this perhaps apparent contradiction or paradox between if angels, you know, came before us and yet they're the creations of our mind or of mind, of which our mind, of course, is just a part of, or microcosm of, how would you address that possibly apparent contradiction? Mm, Well, we have a lot of stories, uh, myths, about how the angels came before us. And um, the angels were without will. They simply were made to do what God wanted them to do and to caretake his creation. But then he said, well, I'm going to make these creatures with wills. And I'm just telling you stories right now. I'm kind of sidetracking your question. And the angel said, no, no, don't do that. Don't don't make anything with a will of its own. We'll obey you. Everything will be fine. And he said, no, I want to make creatures with their own will because I think that it's important. The idea of choice is important because that, in essence, is about the mind, choice in the mind. So he makes these creatures and the angels are very reluctant to help him. And various stories talk about how some of the angels rebelled, of course, and fell because they didn't want to be lesser than humans. And some of these stories are that The angels refused to go and get the clay that he wanted to make the people with. But the truth is that what God made angels from is light or thought 
or magnetic frequency. And what he imbued humans with is light and thought and magnetic frequency. You know, we think of ourselves as as clay vessels, but the truth of the matter is we're mostly water and electrical impulses, very little of us as form. We're mostly light. 99.99, et cetera, percent of our bodies is made of light. Little electrical sparks going back and forth between the spaces in our the synapses in our brains and in our cells. At the subatomic particle yes. level. Yes, at the subatomic particle level. And angels are almost all light. So they and we are made of the same substance. It's just that we have the appearance of form. And because they don't, they are in a realm that precedes our experience in this realm. Right. Okay. And those stories that you alluded to of how uh, the angels resisted, they didn't like the idea of creating humans and stories of kind of jealousy and rebellion. That sounds so anthropomorphic. It does. It does. But I think that part of that comes from like Zoroastrianism, where God is not just pure light, love, and goodness, but there is also dark matter that's part of it. You know, they are the ones that came up with the idea of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. But the truth of the matter is that, you know, opposition is how the world is created. You know, positive, negative. If you study the Kabbalah, you learn that the way to attain heaven is to go up the ladder in the middle, not on either rung, so that you're balancing positive and negative. You're balancing creation and destruction. You're balancing thought and form. You mentioned that anthropomorphic story started from the Zoroastrian tradition, and out of that came the uh, Abrahamic tradition and the god Yahweh, you know, who's known as an angry and vengeful god. And and I, I recently read a book where they were talking about how Yahweh is not the ultimate god that the Jews made him out to be, that he was a latter form or lesser form of the ultimate unmanifest god, and that you know, when Jesus came, he came to bring a new, a new everything, including a, a new God. Right. A new way of observing God. Yeah. One of the things that I understand about creation is that everything that is, is also its opposite. You know, so we have notions of love, but The opposite of love, we would think of it as fear. Well, what is fear? Fear is the loss of love, the loss of life. You know, they're all part of one thing. If we try to, let's say, make a snowflake, okay? The snowflake has to have a form, but it won't be a snowflake unless there is the lack of form in between all those spikes, right? So it's an artistic process, you know, which your father probably taught you and my dad taught me that the negative space is just as important as the positive space. And that's what the ancient Egyptians said. They said the negative space is just as important as the positive space. The heavenly world 
and the world of Duat are the same. They exist within the same space, but one's a positive form and one's a negative form. And there are stories from some ancient spiritual traditions that God created the world in order to experience himself. Yes. And that's that's a very interesting notion that, you know, using the term God, you also use the term the all. So um, this notion of God creating the world to experience himself, and after that initial creation arises polarity and division and ignorance and, and suffering and evil. And rather than it being like a great morality play, it's really just a great cosmic play of consciousness. Yes, yes. It's a great cosmic play of consciousness. And when he's making humans and the world to experience himself, that says that we are himself. We are part of him. We are a part of that divine spark. We can't say that we are lesser than. Altogether, we are the divine spark. That's why group consciousness and communal visions of how we want our world to be are so important because we're making that world for the divine. Well, it's very holographic. Yeah. And you just said we're making the world for the divine. You could say the divine made the world so that the divine could experience itself in all the infinite ways of possibility, including yes. what could be considered not divine. And these traditions talk about God forgetting himself after he he manifests himself in all these myriad forms and then has to go through this long journey back to his original source, being. Yes, I think that's right. It's an interesting thought that God could forget that he was God. But I, <laughs> but I think that that's possible, you know, because we forget that we have this capacity to create reality, but we forget to use it. Or once we use it, we forget that we just used it. And what we're experiencing is something that we just created. And we think it's something that's coming from outside of ourselves, forgetting that we actually created it from inside of ourselves and think that it's actually existing outside as a completely separate objective reality. Right, right. And since, you know, we were created in God's image, we are acting out God's dynamic principles. Right. Yeah. Biblically, let us make man as ourselves, you know, likened to us. And so he's telling the angels that. But we're also repeating God's cosmic creative process at our own microcosmic level, on our own individual egoic level of consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really a, a fascinating way to look at everything. And, yes. And another thing that I really love is the way you talk about light. And you also talk about light in the metaphorical sense, as well as the biological or quantum biological sense of photons. And in quantum science, they talk about photons as carriers of information and intelligence. And that is essentially acting as entities 
that are messengers, they're carriers of information and intelligence. And that's how you've defined angels. Right. So I would love for you to talk about your sense of that connection between angels and let's say biophotons in our realm or our realm of understanding. Well, the Sufis say that angels are the development of higher mind, you know, which can be beauty and grandeur and also, you know, the heaven and hell type things. And so, like you were saying, the battleground lies within ourselves, within our own thoughts and and our words and our deeds. And the angels ride in on that, you know, the way that information is carried in the light and the photons itself. I think we were talking about Thomas Young's double slit experiment where he shines this laser through and it appears to be one light. But then he moves his attention, let's say, away from this laser and the light scatters. But when he draws his attention back to the light, it becomes singular again. And so I think that that's a really good example in the realm of physics, how what we observe as consciousness or the wave of our attention becomes singular. But if we are not paying it any mind, let's say, then it splits and becomes diverse and scatters. So that really shows us that thoughts are things. The way we see the world becomes the world that we live in. And that quality of mind and the mind have everything to do with the observation of angels and their purposes. And yeah, it's very interesting how when we're not paying attention, everything remains in its undefined, unformed state. And as soon as we focus our awareness or attention on something, it collapses whatever we're focusing our attention onto into a discrete, observable state, from a wave state to a particle state. Right. But then there's this other thing about how, of course, we know consciousness creates reality and not the other way around, right? Right. Realities not creating consciousness. It's the consciousness that's creating reality. But you can also see that the universe is not a solid plane at all, the way that, you know, we've wanted to understand it for years. And that the quantum object as an electron can jump from one place to another and can exist in two places simultaneously. You don't follow it like a beam of light. It exists simultaneously in two places. And I think that's kind of interesting because that answers the question, how can, like people always ask me, how can, if I call on Angel Michael to do something for me, am I taking him away from everybody else? No, you're not. He's not just your Michael. He exists for everyone because they are all connected to him. In the same way, he has the power of bilocation and he's connected to everyone because we all have that particle of light that is Michael within us that we can call upon. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it fits with the wave particle thing that Michael is like the wave out of which a nearly infinite number of particles can arise out of at the same instance anywhere. Right. 
And what you said about how reality arises out of consciousness and not the other way around, the particle is created or rises out of the wave state. And obviously the wave cannot emerge out of the particle. Right. So that also underscores the fact that if God made humans and angels out of the same substance, there's not any distance between us. Yeah. And naturally, it would make sense that we could have communication with angels in ways that defy all notion of linearity or space and time. Right. Right. Which, from our three-dimensional perspective and the way most of us are brought up to really view the world in that way, it can be very confusing and disturbing to try and understand that or accept that for many people, despite the fact that so many people have had these experiences. Yeah, yeah. Like I've, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I want to hear what you had to say. Well, throughout my life, I've had many of, I don't know if I would, these kind of experiences, but some of these kind of experiences, as well as other unfathomable kinds of experiences. And yet I had no context or understanding within which to place them or to understand them, because I did not have any kind of a religious upbringing of any kind. I've also distinctly felt that I've been guided and protected in many different ways. You mentioned having a car accident. I also was in a car accident in which I was in a pickup truck that rolled. And the instant that the truck stopped moving, and interestingly enough, landed right back upright, I had this distinct sensation of a bubble popping, you know, a bubble that was around me popping. And it was as if I was back in the world again. And there was a battery in the back of the pickup truck that flew through the back windshield and then through the front windshield. And there was tons of glass everywhere. And I didn't even have a scratch on me. Wow. And I've had numerous experiences not necessarily that physically oriented, but others of where I have been protected from situations where I could have very easily made a disastrous choice in my life or a choice that would have taken me down a completely different path. And I felt distinctly guided away from that choice in a way that's, that's kind of inexplicable, but you can feel it. Yes. Yeah. That's what Rilke would call the blessing of our higher angels, or it's like good sense. You had the good sense, but that's really a higher angel telling you, no, you know. So another question I have, since we're getting into the area of like the function of angels and where they come from, like something that occurred to me while preparing for this was how, and I've heard other people speculate on this, how angels like whether we see them, like I've never visually seen an angel out in three-dimensional space, but I've heard and I've felt presences. And the question that, that I have is, could angels be like a manifestation of, let's say, a future self, you know, as a messenger giving information to our past self? And it depends on our temporal vantage point, how you want to look at it, whether it's from the future to the past or whether it's from the present 
into the future or the present into the past. Right. I don't think for an angel, because they have this ability to bilocate, that bypasses time and space. So I don't believe to them that they know the difference between what's in the future and what's in the past. All they know is the eternal now. You know, so when they come to talk to you, they're talking to you in the eternal now. They may be giving you messages, in my opinion, that you perceive as, oh, that's going to happen to me in the future. So I need to make this other choice. I was thinking more of, let's say, a future self through some practice of prayer or healing of a past issue sends a kind of energetic message from the future or the present back into the past that actually manifests in some way that that our past self perceives and hears or sees or feels in an embodied sort of way. And yet it's a message that potentially came from the future that perhaps is transmitted through, let's say, the metaphor of an angel to ourselves. Does that make sense? I think so, but I never thought about it that way, but that's a possibility. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. That's a very complex question. (laughs) Yeah, I like things like that. But again, and somewhere in the book, you talk about how angels are pure presence. And because they are pure presence, they exist in complete alignment with the divine, with all that is. Yes. And to me, that makes a lot of sense on an embodied level. And it contradicts all those kind of anthropomorphic stories of how the angels rebelled against God, which which obviously doesn't fit with the notion of angels being pure presence in complete alignment with what is. Mm-hmm. Right. One thing I found interesting is you spent a fair amount of time writing about the Yazidis. Could you tell us about them and why you included them, especially considering that they're probably one of the least known spiritual communities in the world? Yes. I was fascinated with the Yazidis because being a writer and having been steeped in religious studies, you know, from the people of the book, they have no book. Their religious understanding of themselves is totally word to mouth. And in a way, you know, I got interested in them because they're a link to the Muslim tradition through the Sufis, because they kind of are aligned with them. Though they're not, they're not Sufis, but they're a little bit aligned with them. They will tell people that they're Sufis if someone wants to ask so that they aren't persecuted. But they believe themselves, according to their own religious tradition, they believe themselves to be embodiments of an angelic being named Tosmelech, who is similar to the angel Michael, who came to earth, who is also similar to Jesus in a way, because he came to earth as a sacrifice of himself for other people. He was cast out of heaven. He went to hell. He rose again, just like the story of Jesus. And anyway, the Yazidis, all of them live in this one community that is at the foot of Mount Ararat, which is where Noah's Ark landed. 
at least according to legend. And so they are in two ways, descendants of Noah and descendants of Tosmelech, the angel. All the people who live there have the last name Melech. You know, that Rami Melech, who was in the Freddie Mercury movie recently. Yes. So he, he is a Yazidi. Now, the Yazidis, according to tradition, they don't marry outside their group. They're a little bit like gypsies. They don't marry outside their group. They are keeping their line pure. They, by and large, many of them don't read and write. But they do have these books that are called the Rays, which tell the stories of Tosmelech. However, it's a great thing to own this book, but nobody can read it because they're illiterate. It's kind of interesting. Their tradition is that the angels will tell them, the angel will tell them what they need to know. They have several angels who manifest as sheikhs, you know, like Sheikh Bakir and, and so on, become different archangels. And when I was researching them, the first reference I found to them was by a man who had written his PhD dissertation on the Yazidis. And he would talk about how he would go to get firsthand information. He was interviewing all of these people in Iran and Iraq and where they lived. And he would ask them a question and, and he would get one answer from one person and one answer from another person. And when he asked who's right, they would say they're all right because we're not supposed to tell you. Mm -hmm. And they're also highly persecuted. Like I first heard of them a few years ago just because of their being persecuted because they mainly live around the Iraqi-Syrian border. And because they don't have any significant alignment with anybody, they're considered other. And we know the fate of the other in this world. Right, right. I mean, we even had President Obama having helicopters airlifting people out and bringing them to the States to try to save them, which resulted in there being communities of Yazidis living in Arizona and New Mexico, uh, California, different places around the United States. And now those people are getting degrees because they realize they need to preserve their culture. They're going back. There's this woman, she's quite amazing. And she's done a lot of writing on the Yazidi culture. And I find her work entirely fascinating. She has done a lot of academic research about the rituals that she observed when she was younger and that were still being carried on, like the emblem of the peacock. There's like a peacock, a brass peacock with light on it that's carried around the church that brings a blessing to everyone. It's almost like a menorah, but it's shaped like a peacock. There's a pool of water inside the temple that, you know, it's kind of like a Christian baptismal font and everyone dips their hand in it and, you know, blesses themselves as they go in. But it's also said to be the place where the angel of death comes and dips his sword in it first before someone dies. Oh, here's one of the reasons they're persecuted right around the door. Before you enter is this black snake, which is supposed to be a symbol of one of the forms that Tosmelik took when he was on earth. So yeah, it's quite interesting. 
And you also talk about, I mean, that's an example of how religions, certain religions that overtake an older one will then demonize the deities of the previous one. Yeah, that's right. And the Hindus have a very beautiful peacock deity, a deva, but that they think that the Yazidis peacock angel is a devil. And there's also an interesting reversal of that in the Tibetan tradition where they have these, what you refer to as these dharmapalas, which are these fierce yes. personifications of these kind of astral entities that I think they were converted from the even more ancient Bon tradition where they, yes. they first existed in, because the Bon tradition is a tradition of magic and sorcery. And the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, of course, assimilated a lot of those elements into their iteration of Buddhism. And some of the great Tibetan Buddhist saints, like Milarepa, converted some of these demons, these very fierce and fiery and powerful demons from the Bon tradition, into being like protectors or angels of the faithful in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And that's like a reversal of the demonization where they're actually deifying the demon. Right. And I think that that's a really good point about how what we'll call negative energy becomes a protection in a way. It's like, don't let this other thing happen. Keep this from happening. And they're the great warriors. You know, you think of, well, in the Egyptian tradition, there's the goddess Sekhmet, and she brings the plague to people, but she's also a goddess of healing. She kills through her fiery breath and she brings the plague. But who knows better how to heal you than she who knows what made you sick? You know, so that's how those divine beings who have negative aspects become protectors. So I would love to get back to, you know, the difference between an archangel and let's say what we might call a guardian angel. There are personal angels that we would say are your guardian angels. The archangels are a level above that. And there's a hierarchy according to, you know, um, archangels are, you know, we think of them, oh, they're the highest ones, but they're not necessarily the highest ones. I mean, there's angels that appear just as geometric shapes. You know, they're the construction of the universe. There's like a whole hierarchy. That reminds me, when I was a child, I used to have these images of these geometric shapes that would occur to me in this in-between state, you know, this hypnagogic state, you know, in between waking and falling asleep. And this occurred like every night for a period of time. And I have never really understood what that was about or what that meant. Right. And you were seeing some of these angels, some of them are simply eyes, like the eyes that pay attention and look around the world. There's this whole angels of the first plane, the highest plane are the, are the seraphim. And they're like the positive energy that carries through all the realms. And the cherubim are the protectors for all spiritual purposes. And then the thrones were created from the beginning of time. And they help smooth the interactions between the upper angels and humans. So then you have these angels of the second plane, 
that are called dominions. And these are material and spiritual energies that take care of, let's call them philosophical leadership issues. There's powers that are justice, more like your picture of justice holding a sword on her throne in the tarot card. Uh, The virtues are spiritual energies. Now, the angels of the third plane are the ones that we know a little better, and they're the guardians of groups of people, principalities, like large groups of people. There's archangels that are mediators between divinity and heaven, and then the angels that are assigned to do the work and sometimes work with individual people. So you see the archangels are even lower down on the list than what we normally think of. You talked about them emerging from mind. And on the microcosmic level, we collapse the formless, the wave, the infinite potentiality of existence into particle-like discrete states. I get the sense that we do that with angels as well. And yet angels are a manifestation of, of a kind of dynamic energy that can manifest in different realms of world affairs. Right. You can look at angels like operating like planetary beings that surround the sun, which you think of as God, let's say. And they each have each planet in astrology has its own purpose and influence. Or you can think of them like the chemical chart, you know, where you see each angel divided into the chart of elements, and you can see each angel that way. And they have a kind of gravitational force upon us and our consciousness, both on the individual level and on our collective level. Like in astrology, they're mapping out the planets and heavenly bodies as a kind of mapping of the kind of gravitational forces that these heavenly bodies have upon not just on a physical level, but also on other levels as well, including on the level of our our consciousness and our awareness or the way we relate to the world, because everything has a kind of gravitational effect on everything else in a way. I'm using the term gravitational as as an effect that occurs in this entangled soup that we're all in together. Right. And again, I think that that's kind of the way that I see angels as being connected to astrological signs and planets and constellations. You know, I had this dream once where I was standing with angels making, you know, above this big cauldron of planetary soup. And we were making connections between this planet and that planet. And we were making problems that had to be solved. And we were making blessings and tools that were to be used. And I can remember in the dream saying, oh, this is a really interesting chart. And there's so much that can happen in this chart, good or ill, but it's going to be quite the experience. And then the angels said to me, jump in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's like, okay, so they are making, they are kind of in charge of our destiny in a way, but we are still free to make choices with use of our will, given the situations that are thrown in front of us. And sometimes we make the wrong decisions, you know, and sometimes a person doesn't 
choose what their guardian angel wants them to choose, you know, but I still think that it's all about what we said before. It's about the lesson so that the information or the experience can be packaged up and taken with us when we die. And that this is like, okay, God, this was my experience, you know, and God says, yes, that was our experience. And I would think if God wants to experience all the possibilities of himself, he would want to make both choices. He would not be satisfied in making the, quote, best choice or, quote, right choice. He would also want to experience the wrong choice or the worst choice. Yes. Yes. Otherwise, he would be cheating himself from his original intention in creating the universe, the cosmos, the multiverse. Right. Which goes back to my thinking about my grandmother saying, don't ever judge anyone's bad mistakes. You don't know what's going on. You know, and I'm like, okay. Yes. Yeah. So this whole thing is really quite wonderfully fascinating. I think it is. I mean, every time I kept looking at somebody else's take on it, I was completely fascinated by it. I was completely fascinated by the idea that there was this Islamic sheikh who believed that angels were like water. You know, some of them become steam and some of them flow and, you know, some of them become ice. And that that was really an interesting idea that angels take various forms as part of an experience for us. Um, Yeah. And there's also legends of angels being falling stars. And there are numerous indigenous stories of wise, godlike beings visiting from the Pleiades or, or other star constellations. Right. What's your take on that? Oh, I think so. Yes. I love, I love the idea of the Pleiades because there are seven of them. And I think it's the Yazidis who believe that those seven stars in the Pleiades are the seven archangels. And there's also some traditions talk about the Pleiades as the seven sisters. So yes, there's a feminine quality to this as well. Maybe it's a creational quality. Yes. Well, the Egyptians saw them as the seven Hathors, who were goddesses of fate. So, yeah. And also getting back to uh, the Egyptian tradition, they talked about humans as having seven souls. And, you know, thinking about that and some of the descriptions, some of these souls sounded very much like angels. And I think six of those souls returned to heaven, you know, to get the new body, a new vessel to venture and journey through the, the three-dimensional world. Plus, I think, don't they make a journey through the underworld as well? They make a journey through the underworld, right? This is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Central Vermont Community Radio. I'm talking with Norman D. Ellis. She's the author of The Ancient Tradition of Angels, The Power and Influence of Sacred Messengers. So that's another interesting dynamic because there's a lot of talk about fallen angels and darkness and part of our journey, part of the the great psycho-spiritual journey that humans get to make is to go travel through darkness, through the so-called underworld, which I suspect has been conflated with hell, perhaps? Yes. 
Yes, but how do you know what a right decision is unless you've made a wrong one? And yeah. go, oops, that's not it. <laughs> yeah. The only way we, we ever really learn is by making mistakes. If we always make the right choice, then we, we could come away with the illusion that we're invincible and can do no wrong, which could be the greatest folly of all. Right. That would exactly be the greatest folly of all. And so many people who shall remain nameless at this point have succumbed to that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that seems to be the drive of the ego to sanctify itself in that sort of way. Right. And you know, in the Egyptian tradition, Ra, which is the light, has 72 names and 72 shadows. And they draw these pictures of shadows. These would be like his negative angels, you know, his dark angels. They draw them on the walls. They have names like, we're talking about the ego, he whose head is on too high. You know, that's a negative aspect of the light. There's another one that's called eater of his own feces, you know. So that's someone who believes exactly what they're talking about. And we know it's not truth. Right. And we have a common term for that. We say that they're full of shit. Yeah, that's right. We do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like there's so many different names like that that are part of the dark aspect of the angel. But you don't know. It's part of the light, as we say. It's, It's Ra's shadow. How do we know light until we know darkness? So if it's all light, then we don't know the difference. Right. And in going back to the Taoist tradition, they have the yin-yang symbol in which at the heart of the light is darkness, and at the heart of darkness is the light. And they're constantly in an endless cycle. Right. The seat of the opposite exists in each one. Right. So it's, it's like a, a portal in the heart of darkness to the light. Yes. It's a wonderful dynamic and a a very difficult one in our culture. Yes, it is. It is. We have been brought up to reject the dark, to reject mistakes, to reject evil, and yet evil, quote-unquote evil, or fallen angels, or Lucifer, can be quite powerful teachers, perhaps teaching lessons that we could not learn any other way. There's no redemption without the fall. Right, right. And and one could could look at, you know, God creating the universe to experience himself as being an intention to fall in order to realize who he ultimately is by going through the entire process of falling and then the multi-billion year process of returning. You know, if you think of it in terms of our notion of time. Right. That's exactly right. Well, that brings me back to this whole idea of my favorite angel is Faniel. I think that's how you say it. Or maybe it's Peniel. Depends on how you spell it. He's like this angel that Jacob wrestles with, you know, on the cliff. Though he doesn't say his name, that's who it's believed this angel is. And he's standing on the cliff because he's a Shamsi, he's a sun singer. He's supposed to, first thing in the morning, sing the sun into being. 
And so Jacob is there. Jacob has stolen his brother's wife. He's stolen his brother's property. He's stolen his brother's animals. He's taken over his brother's inheritance. And he's getting ready to meet his fate in battle with his brother. But before the sun rises, he meets this angel and he has to wrestle with him, you know. And he wrestles with this angel and the angel says, let me go, let me go. And, you know, it's like, I'm not going to let you go until you tell me my name. And he changes his name to Israel. And then the angel lets him go. But the angel's name is Peniel, like the word penitence. And his name stands for his power and quality is that he is the angel that saves those of us from our own stupidity. He's the angel that saves people from their own stupidity. This unnamed angel, maybe it's even God himself, but he redeems us. And I think that he's invoked by exorcists in the Ethiopian tradition. And I think that he is one of the very strongest angels that we have because he saves us. You know, it's like, okay, I've made a bad decision or I'm about to make a bad decision or how come I don't get what I want? It's because Peniel's there protecting us from our own stupidity, you know, which I think is a really interesting concept. I love that. That's like a graphic manifestation of our getting to wrestle with our own stupidity, like the consequences of our own actions, which are, you know, in our, in our human lives are often filled with stupidity. (laughs) Right. Because we're constantly making mistakes and doing the wrong thing, even though most of us are loath to acknowledge that we've been so stupid or made such idiotic mistakes. Right. But it goes back to the angel saying, you know, you don't always get what you want. They'll save us from our own false ideas. Right. This has been a really wonderful, wonderful conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this. And one last thing in your book, you mentioned that some people talk about there being an angel for every particle in the universe. Oh, yeah. There's a guy named Rabbi David Cooper who says that every thought has an angel. And by that, he means every particle has an angel and that angels and demons originate from within. And they're the realities that our minds create. So every thought has an angel. And conversely, I would say, Meister Eckhart said, that's all an angel is. It's an idea of God. Another reflection. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we're all, all of us, God, the gods and goddesses, angels, and humans, we're all reflections of each other in in different sorts of ways. Exactly. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Tony. Goddess bless. Goddess bless indeed. That was Normandy Ellis. She's an award-winning writer, workshop facilitator, and archpriestess of the Fellowship of Isis, and the author of several books, including Awakening Osiris, and Hieroglyphic Words of Power. And her new book that we've been talking about is The Ancient Tradition of Angels, The Power and Influence of Sacred Messengers. Are you real 
or some strange angel. Strange, strange, timeless place. Crystal.
These pools, these pools, these pools, these pools, but always, but always, but always, but always. From your world, from your world, from your world, from your world, to all worlds, to all worlds, to all worlds, to all worlds.
laid eyes upon you I was filled with such a longing To be with you in the dark Bright star Since I could not fly beside you I would chart my own course by you And I'd sail it by your light Bright star
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 